Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Just listening to those announcements, thinking... Tracy Hutchinson's not involved with pretty important things. She's involved with fundamental projects uh, supporting community radio stations affected by the fires. And uh, I'm really pleased to invite her back. We spoke to Tracy, uh, gee, a few months ago now uh, about the support being provided to community stations as they grapple with the pandemic and the response there, and also with the fires that have affected them very directly, particularly in uh, Far East Victoria and southern New South Wales and it's really great to have you back Trace good morning well hello Kalia it's good to hear your voice I know likewise good to be connecting by um, you know the lifeblood to so many of us community radio and um, I guess you know I I feel like for years I've been saying you know we've never needed community radio more how community community broadcasting sector more, but, um, you know, as events sort of continue to throw up very challenging environments for us, uh, which began at the beginning of the year, the last time we spoke, which was around about um, February, I think, just on the eve of, of this global pandemic impacting Australia, and I'd just come back from visiting some community stations in southeast Gippsland and the south coast of New South Wales. And, you know, was was really quite um, fairly profoundly impacted by being on those fire grounds and the impact of, of those fires on those communities and particularly the community broadcasters who... Um, who worked um, relentlessly through that time. And I visited um, in my capacity at the Community Broadcasting Foundation, where I've been working for um, just under a year now in a, in a national partnerships and projects role. And one of the things that I was responding to, I guess, was my my other life as a, as a career broadcaster and having been involved in covering, um, you know, lots of a fairly um, traumatic events in many ways and, and I guess when I heard uh, some of our broadcasters um, some of the reports of what they've been doing and other media picking up on what community radio was doing in some of those highly impacted areas I I got an inkling that um, some of our broadcasters may not have been travelling too well as a result of, of being exposed to that Disaster, those disasters, or that disaster in their community, and, and the trauma impact, and and having had some experience of that myself, I I started sort of just quietly investigating that, and um, over the last few months, um, have been working with the Dart Centre for uh, journalism and trauma. The Dart Centre is a a global leader in this space. For for those that that aren't familiar came originally out of Columbia University and they started looking at the impact of trauma on returned war correspondents originally. And from that grew this understanding, this growing understanding that journalists and broadcasters are impacted in, in similar ways to first responders, um, that when we're covering uh, traumatic events, it's very hard to not 
be impacted by that. People are impacted differently um, and a whole range of reasons for that. But essentially, I felt that it was something that, that... And have we lost Chase? Casters who, oh, who had been in, in this um, situation. So, um, yeah, just sort of quietly worked with Dart and, and um, created a, a sector first, really. There's never been um, anything in the community sector before to provide sort of trauma literacy and, and some kind of resilience support in the wake of, of covering these sorts of events. They were also unprecedented events, so we never really had anything that went on for that long. No, um, and we, we did lose you just for a second there when you were uh, kind of wrapping up on what the Dart Centre does, but it is fundamental, I think think that we provide support to those people providing services we rely on like even a couple of weeks ago um, I had Michael Simic who performs as Michelangelo uh, on the show um, talking about how his area which was in um, southern um, highlands of New South Wales very much affected ringed by fire uh, over the summer and how everyone in the community pretty much tuned to the local station they were the ones most closely reporting what was happening uh, volunteers, minute-by-minute uh, oh. minute type of updates. And, uh, yeah, though the I suppose unlike professional broadcasters might not have mm. received any training in order to be able to then cope with the fallout of that. And we know even, you know, the ABC and SBS and other networks over the years have had to improve their supports for staff and their understanding of what they go through. So where do you start when it comes to volunteers? I mean, are they opt-in programs that you're developing with, with the DART Centre to provide support to them? Yeah, so I guess there's, there's two things running parallel and, and both um, and, and on both levels um, we're seeing the community broadcasting sector respond. So on one level it is uh, the preparedness, um, whether or not you feel your station wants to be involved in emergency broadcasting and that's a, that's a whole other area that stations essentially will determine for themselves and um, there's some work going on around providing some training and preparedness. The work I've been doing is, is sort of post-disaster in lots of ways. Um, well, it is, and it's about... Um, and I've, I've worked with a particular cohort to develop um, this inaugural pilot iteration, and I did that through sort of gently sort of spending time with people and assessing their willingness to be part of this this pilot iteration. Um, and we've now been, you know, very fortunate to receive some funding Um Lion's share of funding's come through the Victorian government's mental health bushfire fund, um, but also the Foundation for Regional and Rural uh, Renewal and the Australian Community Foundation to uh, explore how we uh, can now invite other community stations who have been impacted by specifically this trauma event over summer uh, to 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 participate in um, these trauma literacy and resilience workshops that DART deliver in community. Um, we ran a little online trial with a core cohort, which included um, stations from Bowerall, uh, so the Southern Highlands, um, 
uh, Braidwood, Maruya, so south coast of New South Wales and uh, south east Gippsland and into the high country. And from that, we were able to sort of finesse the offering as well and, and kind of really understand the difference, I guess, between when someone signs on as an emergency responder, like if you're in the fire brigade or something like that, you know what you've signed on for. But uh, if you've signed on to do the Trad Jazz Show and you're suddenly giving out um, bushfire warnings, you know, it's, it's not really part of what you thought you were going to be doing that week. And, you know, it's it's an important thing for the sector to respond to. Um, and this work is, I guess, a, I'm pretty passionate about it. But um, having covered Black Saturday and other things for the national broadcaster before the ABC had a real way of responding comprehensively, and I think we've got an opportunity in the community sector to really... Um, you know, really understand the impact of, of what our work actually does as volunteers. You know, the, the, the caravan doesn't roll on uh, for, for community stations and the people who broadcast there. Um, they are living in this. And I guess the other thing that um, this is sort of, I guess, prompted as well is a, is a broader look at some of the other issues that have subsequently challenged our broadcasters as well, um, broadcasting through a global pandemic and the Black Lives Matter, um, um, the latest um, iteration of, of people focusing attention on, on an issue that we know is, is hundreds of, you know, a couple of hundred years old uh, in this country. Um, so it certainly allowed us to sort of start thinking about, um, you know, cultural trauma and other sorts of things that we might be able to respond to and I'm starting to have those conversations as well. But in the first instance, we're focusing very specifically on community broadcasters impacted by uh, the 2019-2020 the um, bushfires, 80 stations of a 450 carrier in Australia of community stations were broadcasting in fire grounds at some point during the last summer. That's a lot of people. Um, and this is a really uh, wonderful way that um, we've been able to respond, both as the Community Broadcasting Foundation, so that the, the main funder of the sector, but being able to expand our funding opportunities and engage philanthropy and, in this case, the Victorian government to assist us in delivering these very specialist um, post-event uh, trauma literacy and resilience programs that I know, um, certainly based on the, just the very first um, chance that we had to sort of engage on this level, is is, is much needed and very welcome. And uh, it's, a, it's a quiet project. It's, it's sort of, um, you know, it's one that you need to be um, very mindful and careful about the way we go about it and how we invite people to participate. But certainly uh, we'll be looking at, you know, hopefully being able to establish something that becomes part of, of what we can deliver as a sector to, to our broadcasters who we know are volunteers, you know, they're signing up for something out of passion and love and a deep sense of, of duty of care to their community. Um, so we're trying to, I guess, be there for those broadcasters as well and, and, and assist them processing some really quite traumatic events that we find ourselves, you know, at the front line of. And as you mentioned, you know, first responders in many ways, even the work, you know, you're doing every week, it's 
um, it, it, we're not uh, we're not robots, you know. We're 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 human people, and um, I think the fact we care so much about wanting to do the work means we've got very high empathy levels, which also means we're going to respond on particular you know particular ways to, to these sorts of events. So yeah, and we yeah. and we know also. Um, it should I mean people listening? Many would recognise the voice of Tracy Hutchison, who um, was a long-time broadcaster here and program manager at Triple R, but uh, these days in a role with the Community Broadcasting Foundations as partnerships and projects manager and speaking about a, uh, a project that they're running, piloting and rolling out um, in partnership with the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma through fire-affected communities, 80 stations, a lot to be working with to support yeah. um, trauma, literacy and resilience with those broadcasters. And, yeah, I was just thinking um, what you are saying about empathy and mm. uh also about how we support each other, um, our own communities and how our, our stations support us. And we've all been, you know, grappling uh, across all media, but across the community broadcasting sector with responding to the pandemic and just learning as we go. Mm. And it sounds very much like that's what you're doing with this project too, is learning as you go and feeling mm. your way. And because if it's not been done before and this is the first time, then you're going to make mistakes or, or mm-hmm. you know, change direction and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But are you hoping that eventually this might lead to a, a bit of a, a, a blueprint for how all stations can support uh, their volunteers and support their broadcasters as we continue to confront really big global issues and, and big national issues like the fires? Yeah, look, um, aspirationally, um, you know, I, I certainly do hope that we, we can come up with, and, and you know, I'm not do, doing this work. I'm, I'm I guess, bringing um, the participants uh, to to the opportunity. Um, we're very much working with experts in this field, um, the Dart Centre, and and looking more broadly um, at at some of the other ways and and specialist providers in that. Um, trauma literacy space. Um, so I'm certainly responding to um, need as it's identified, and um, you know that that is going to come in very very different ways, and it will need to be delivered and received in very different ways. We're a very diverse sector, uh, so I guess um, this is a, a starting point. It is a little a little uh, roadmap to how we might go and. Um, we're just sort of carefully and, and gently um, moving along the map and and being open to to need and and um, consulting with with experts about how to meet that need um, and how to meet that need in terms of how it's best going to be received. So you know it's it's um, it is new territory. Uh, you know I'm I'm certainly. I'm, I'm my experience in this area as someone who who understands the impact of, of trauma through broadcasting and journalism uh, through lived experience and if I if that's a way to um, I guess facilitate uh, opportunities for others in our sector to to think differently about about what our roles are as community broadcasters, um, then, then that's then that's a great thing. And I think 
we are all pivoting at the moment, to use that much used term, but we are all having to pivot on a daily basis to unknown things and all of them are posing challenges uh, for us in our daily lives and I think they are magnified when, when we're broadcasting. It's the nature of journalism and storytelling that um, they're magnified and um, so I guess there is an opportunity to also think about uh, how we take care of each other uh, in, in, in those roles and um, and certainly it feels like a good place for me to be focusing my energy at the moment, Kalia. Yeah, um, I, I imagine and I mean very soon I'm going to be speaking to a, um, another journalist um, who's working with The Conversation and they'd pulled together a whole lot of digital storytelling around how flora and fauna is recovering six months since those fires because there is a sense, I think, it is six months uh, ago um, that these communities have been forgot, somehow forgotten and I don't, I actually don't think we have forgotten communities myself. I mean, I think very often but of course the focus is is elsewhere at the moment with the, the broad health crisis and we're all peeling our, mal- our masks mm-hmm. off to talk to, e- to each other over the airwaves even and I think um, that sense of storytelling uh, around this, I imagine the communities you're working with are having to think about how they want to keep talking about these issues but in different ways and I suppose the onus is on broadcasters to keep it sort of interesting and meaningful and and very relevant to their audiences as well. Yeah, and I think think there is also, you know, I'm I'm very aware of... of, um, of trauma fatigue um, with some of these communities as well and uh, so I'm being very responsive and respectful to their readiness um, to be involved, you know, in, in another opportunity and, and ideally, you know, we would be delivering these in community now. <laughs> you know, this is this was the intention that we would be rolling out um, this, these workshops in community um, with those specific communities that we've been, you know, working with up to now and being able to expand it uh, because of that additional funding that we've had from the Victorian government, um, but also more broadly through some of the other funders as well nationally. But, you know, we can't, you know, we... we you know, we, 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 we can't do that because we're obviously, you know, got other restrictions that are also impacting on people. You know, this a couple of these, you know, these key communities were also expecting an economic bounce um, at Easter, uh, which we know didn't happen. You know, it went from everyone being encouraged to go into these small communities uh, to don't come here and buy our toilet paper. And also recently, um, is your postcode <laughs> Melbourne? Because if it is, no. <laughs> Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So we can't, you know, the guard experts that we're working with are, are, are based in in, uh, in Melbourne. Um, so you know, we're, we've we've got you know twelve plus months to to roll out this um, these workshops, and we're hoping that you know we will have some freedom of movement to be able to do that. Um, you know, within that twelve month period, and our funders have been very open to what the impact of COVID means, but. You know, we, we just had, you know, double and triple whammies with people um, who, you know, 
and and it's not the answer. I mean, it's 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 not the complete answer. Uh, I think part of Dart's ability as experts in this area to be able to deliver. I mean, they are you know the global leaders in that nexus between journalism, the media, and, and psychological trauma. They've been doing this for nearly three decades, um, but they also recognise that you know there is a limit to to what their work can do, and and they are also able to identify if if some of the participants might need, you know, additional referrals. So, you know, it's, it is actually working in, um, you know, moving into that therapeutic space. Uh, and it, it's been a really, that initial uh, little um, cohort delivery that we did, which we did do online, um, the response was incredible. You know, it was the first time a group of people who had been impacted by the same fire event, but they'd all, they were all in kind of different parts of, of New South Wales and Victoria had sort of been able to come together and, and kind of understand that, oh, right, it's just not me. It wasn't just it's not me. There's nothing weird about me for feeling like I can't stop thinking about that thing. Um, it was a very, very um, cathartic and, 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 if you can say, you know, positive thing to be part of, to sort of see various different people, you know, sort of gradually kind of the, the defences came down and there was this sense of, oh, okay, that's a person, another community broadcaster who's in another little town and they had the same fire event happen at the same time um, a couple of hundred kilometres away and this is how they're feeling now. And it was it was actually a really kind of visceral um response from that so as soon as we've got some freedom of travel um, we'll be able to you know roll these programs out you know in community with our dart specialists who are incredible um, this is this is what they do and um, and I'm the, the conduit in many ways the facilitator of sort of um, establishing and identifying people that want to be part of it and stations that want to be part of it who were impacted over that last summer and then look more broadly as I mentioned to other ways that we might be able to expand on some of the other issues that have impacted our people, our broadcasters this year, um, some That's, of the, the cultural trauma. So, mm. Yeah, amazing stuff. And I imagine the Dart Centre being sort of US-based has a real insight into Black Lives Matter as well. But we have to stop talking. Mm. Um, uh, uh, it's of always course. great to talk with you. Thank you for being our conduit to what's happening as well um, across the community broadcasting sector. It's um, We are very fortunate here at Triple R to have what we have and the listeners we have as well and um yeah and you're huge in that story too tracy um no doubt we'll speak to you before this uh, crazy year is out well thank you for the the, the constant salve that uh, that you provide and um and good ship triple r and, and all of us in community broadcasting you know it's a these are the times where we where we rally and um and be reminded that you know it's such a powerful network and it's how we stay connected so thanks so much for your interest and always lovely to hear your beautiful voice Kalia. Uh, likewise likewise i've been looking forward to all morning tracy hutchinson uh, partnerships and projects manager over at the broadcasting uh, community broadcasting foundation that's where you find her these days no doubt will pop up as a broadcaster here on triple r again You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. 
And now we're going to zero in on how animal and plant survivors are tracking six months since those fires ripped through large parts of the east coast of Australia. And Anthea Batsakis is a Deputy Energy um, Energy and Environment Editor over at The Conversation. Uh, her team and uh, have been producing a digital mapping um, kind of interactive project that graphically shows how these regions are faring now, plus some really neat kind of summaries of how specific species have been affected by the fires. And I've asked her to join me this morning to talk more about it. It's really great to have you with us, Anthony. Welcome. Hi, Kalia. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. And I am conscious that we're going to be talking about a kind of a mapping uh, digital project on the radio. So we're going to use lots of uh, word pictures this morning and, of course, encourage people to go and have a look for themselves at what you've produced. But maybe talk a little bit about um, the thinking behind your project to visually show the how these animal and plant species are tracking six months since um, the infernos that we witnessed uh, last summer. Yeah, sure. So um, this project um, called Flora Fauna Fire is uh, really an immersive digital project where you can scroll through and and you can see, you know, just how much devastation the fires wrought on Australia. Um, So one major thing that we did is we mapped the uh, animals' habitats with um, how much the fires overlapped with that habitat. Um, It's... When you see it laid out like that, it's 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 pretty stark and, and pretty devastating. You know, in some cases, you've got animals whose entire habitat range has just been totally burnt by fires, and, and in many cases, it's the animals that, in places that have never or really rarely seen fires. Um, so, in this project, I guess you can you can scroll through and you can have a look and you can explore um, different stories of each of these animals as well. So, we try and really tell um, stories of individual species as much as we can. Yeah, and I I suppose you've got some iconic species in there, but also ones that, yeah, we might not have ever heard about before, like, say, an endemic spider or or whatever. But I think, um, you know, when the fires were unfolding, the carnage when it came to not just plant species but also animal species was there to see and I think broke all of our hearts. Um, what what did it involve for you to be able to go down to that species level and, and gather that data? What was the process for you and your team? Yeah, sure. So um, my my job in the project was to um, coordinate stories of 119 different uh, species. So they were on the government's priority list of you know which species needed urgent attention. So I uh, I guess I commissioned. Uh, dozens of experts to to write on those individual stories, and and some of them were really devastating. And and you're like you said, it's not just you know the iconic koalas, although they were involved as well, um, but things like uh, you know the Banksia montana mealybug, for example, which I hadn't heard of before. But um, this is an insect that lives only on you know a critically endangered Banksia plant, the Banksia montana plant, um, and you know, fires tore through 100% of that plant's habitat and, and researchers don't know now if it's globally extinct. Um, we also covered, uh, you know, there are a lot of small brown birds, <laughs> for example. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got your beautiful, colourful natives and um, also there are quite a few, you know, little birds like the eastern bristle bird, you know, um, which has a really interesting story where... Um, you know, a team of researchers were, were literally helicoptered in and, and dropped into an active fire zone to, to catch some of these birds in nets um, and then to build an insurance population so that they uh, 
you know, if the fires ended up actually tearing through, that they would have this insurance population to rebuild from captivity again. So there's, there's lots of stories like that throughout throughout this project. Well, that sounds um, really kind of futuristic, but it actually happened, didn't it? And I wonder, I mean, was there a lot of emotion involved when you commissioned these experts to really look at species perhaps they've been studying through their scientific careers? Absolutely. I mean, these academics have been looking at they spent their whole careers looking at these specific animals and plants or, or, you know, the ecology of groups of animals and plants and just to see them, you know, just die out suddenly from these fires and or, or even, you know, go globally extinct in some cases, you know, must be really, really devastating. And you can see that in some of the writing that they do um, because the conversation, you know, we... We commission academics to write the articles, you know, and, and the journalists are the ones that edit it. Um, so it goes through this journalistic lens, but the academics are the ones telling the stories. So, um, you know, you can really you can really read the emotion in, in some of what they're saying. And it is a digital project and a mapping project and there's beautiful photos and it's, you know, really, I think, important if you want to understand these stories to, to bring all of that together. But I, I imagine there's a lot you've needed to discard in order to keep it um, succinct and um, keep the, the readers um, travelling through the kind of journey for an individual species or for a whole state, um, as it might be for New South Wales. Was that quite a difficult process to to bring so much data and storytelling together and then uh, keep it uh, down to just its essence? Um, yeah, I, I think so. Um, so my colleague, Wes Mountain, he, he was responsible for all the mapping and he did an absolutely brilliant job. He um, So we used government data and, and other official data to... Uh, you know, to show where all these species live and, and to show where all the fires went and everything, you know, but... To be honest, a lot of species don't actually have um, data supporting them because there's a lot of species that, you know, are barely known to exist. You know, for example, they might have only just recently in the last few years been discovered only to then, you know, be dying out. And, um, you know, for those species, for example, it's it's hard to find data. You know, I I ran into this when we were, you know, um, putting stories to all the crayfish species. I think there's like 22 of them. and none of them, I think, have any, any data to support them. So where we could put data, we did. Um, but I think keeping it concise was, you know, a half of the issue. The other half was finding it. Yeah, well, it, I mean, that is quite confronting, isn't it, to think that you have fires tore through areas that um, scientists hadn't really had enough time or resources or, or whatever it might be to comb through and actually know what was even there. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, um, you know, there's another really interesting story that was told about um, the Macquarie perch. So this is an endangered freshwater fish, um, and it was one of the most abundant fish in the Murray-Darling Basin, but now it only lives in a handful of sites in the Murray-Darling Basin um, because of other reasons before the bushfires, you know, like habitat loss and development and stuff, and climate change, obviously. Um, one of the habitats uh, was completely burnt in the bushfires and being in water, you know, many fish survived, but then they're at an imminent threat of rain. Um, so a few researchers went to the site three weeks after and, and, and saved 10 individ- individual fish for this insurance population. And then a few days later, the rains came and, you know, turned the river into sludge, basically, because the rains wash in ash and fire retardants and sediment and all that. Um, 
So there's a lot of stories like that, and and the Macquarie Perch, I think, is well researched. But you know, if if you don't, it, there's still a lot of like fish, especially that that aren't well known. Um, a lot of crayfish that aren't aren't as researched as they, you know, as we'd like them to be, just because they're. I guess maybe they're just not as iconic. I'm not sure, to be honest. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, we're speaking with <laughs> Anthea Batsakis, um, Deputy Energy and Environment Editor, over the conversation about a digital mapping project that her and her team have pulled together that graphically shows how regions affected by the fire, um, the animal and plant species found there, are tracking six months on from the fires of last summer. And uh, I was speaking earlier, um, Anthea, with a, a previous guest uh, about a sense that in the new health crisis that we've kind of forgotten maybe how um, the un- this current unprecedented situation has, has really moved us to looking forward and um, past the unprecedented fire season. But I suppose it's just winter now. Uh, the fire season's around the corner. I think last year it started in spring in New South Wales. Is there a sense um, that you got when speaking with researchers in this area that that they did feel like we'd kind of forgotten and not taken focus or, or really people are just busy flat out getting on with what they need to do to to help these species recover? Um, I think the coronavirus has, has probably hampered a lot of efforts to um, do as much as we can to recover a lot of these species. Um, you know, I, I think for the public there's a sense that, you know, the bushfires did feel like a lifetime ago. You know, for the victims and families, they're, they're, I mean, they're still grappling with it every day, but... You know, for us, it feels like it feels like such a long time ago. I remember in March um, when we first went into lockdown, thinking, "Oh my God, it was only a few weeks ago that we were, we were all choking from the bushfire smoke." You know, it just feels like such a long time ago. And another thing, I, which is, I guess, why I think this this project is so important, and and it's so important for the media to continue to be covering this sort of thing, um, so we don't forget. Yeah, and I mean, do you feel like that's the contribution that you can make or journalism can do for these communities, but also for the these species, many hundreds that you've um, covered in this project to just keep it as much as possible in, in people's minds' eye? Absolutely, um, definitely. But, you know, the other hard thing is that journalists are losing a lot of resources now and so many of us are being made redundant across the board. And so there's only so much we can cover between coronavirus and bushfires. I mean, that's just the harsh reality of it. Um, I There's so much more to tell with bushfires. I think we're going to be recovering from that season for years and years to come. Um, and for journalists, it's, it's so important that we tell the stories that might not otherwise be told. Um, and we saw during Black Summer, you know, just how important journalism was, especially in community radio, you know, and making sure that people find help. Um, but I guess our role is also to hold people um, in power to account who make the decisions that can help or hamper efforts to protect the environment. Um, so I think that, you know, it's important journalists do stick with it, you know, in lots of different ways. Yeah, and um, I mean, with your particular project, and I encourage people to head to the Conversation website and find it, it's um, very beautiful but also very confronting. Um, will you hope to revisit this in, in 12 months or two years' time? Is that the kind of plan for it? Uh, I'm not sure what the plan is, to be honest. I think we're just taking it, you know, a week at a time. Um, it would. I think there's still so much 
to tell, um, and we're definitely going to be keeping on this for, for a long time. Um, you know, we get pictures every day <laughs> on bushfire-related stories, and so there's, there's still a lot to tell. I, I'm not sure specifically if we're going to be doing any projects, you know, 12 months or two years down the line, but I wouldn't be surprised if we did. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing it with us on Triple R this morning, Anthea. It's really great to meet you as well. You too. Thanks so much again for having me on. No worries, Anthea Batsakis. um, She's over with The Conversation and you can um, head to The Conversation's website and check out that project. Give yourself a good half hour or an hour to to read through um, and you can spend a really long time clicking through on, as you said, um, a whole lot of little brown birds, but they all have their own story and um, they're all very important stories as well. Triple R. And I'm not going to run through all the numbers indicating how dire the un- unemployment situation is right now for hundreds of thousands of people. But for context, uh, unemployment's at a 20-year high. Upwards of 800,000 people have lost work since March. And this week, the Federal Treasurer will be making announcements about the future of safety nets, including JobKeeper and JobSeeker. And last week, the Prime Minister also announced $2 billion for JobTrainer, uh, recognising that young people's jobs are being particularly hard hit in this pandemic. Uh, The Mitchell Institute has found with its new research that 130,000 apprenticeships will not be offered because of the coronavirus economic impacts. Peter Hurley's their Education Policy Fellow, and it's great to have you on Triple R. Peter, welcome. Thank you. And uh, as mentioned, you know, things are, things are a bit different to what we expected. I mean, we could go over all that, but we're not. But your new analysis finds this recession is tracking in a similar way to past recessions where trainee and apprentice, uh, apprenticeships um, disappear. Can you kind of take us back and, and um, explain how we're tracking this time compared to, to past situations? Sure. <coughs> I think um, at least with apprentices, and the trainees, I mean, what you think I need to understand, say, apprentices and trainees, is that they're really connected to the job market. Uh, there's a lot of job going on at the moment, a job trainer, job maker, and so on. Uh, and certainly with the uh, apprentices, um, because you need to have contract with an employer, if there's something going on in the employment market, then it's going to affect the apprentices. So if you look at what happened previously in the previous downturn, um, at both you know the 1980s, 1990s, and even in the global financial crisis, there was a real big drop off in the number of uh, new apprentices, uh, uh, young people in particular, because that's generally who do apprentices, uh, do apprenticeships, um, uh, kind of getting contracts with employers. Now we looked at that and said there'd be about 30% drop. That's what you'd expect over the first 12 months, um, and that's already been playing out. The, the, the latest figures show that there's been a 33% drop in new apprentices and trainees. And can we take lessons from the past, or really are we in an unprecedented situation? Uh, I think I think we are in an unprecedented situation, actually. But um, I think that there are ways. If you're looking at, say, uh, young people and um, what's happening, say, in the in the job market and its interaction with the, with education, is that um, often education can play a really good role, and the education system can play a role for people um, when the job market's not working properly. Um, now, you can do that by offering more courses, um, uh, uh, and, or, but when it comes to apprenticeships, you can, what you want to do is just find ways to create uh, contracts with employers. Now, you can do that through uh, mandating you know, the number of apprenticeships people have to do in public works project, projects, or there's terms like shovel-ready projects, for instance, or you could create kind of specialised kind of uh, programs that young people and, and apprentices can work on. So, there are 
ways that this can that this that these problems can be kind of mitigated. If that makes sense. You with Kalia and the Grapevine, and speaking this morning with Peter Hurley, he's Education Policy Fellow at the Mitchell Institute, and speaking about the two billion dollar job trainer program that the Prime Minister uh, announced last week, and we've just been talking about some of the opportunities for government. Uh, Peter, and will that $2 billion announced by the Prime Minister go far enough to in- incorporate some of those opportunities that you, you recommend? Uh, I think I think with the $2 billion, it's important to remember that it's actually in two parts. One of it is a $1.5 billion subsidy towards apprentices. And, and what was kind of being flagged was there are about 260,000 or 280,000 apprentices and trainees, and a lot of them are on JobKeeper. And there was some talk that when that JobKeeper subsidy ended, that um, there would be tens of thousands of apprentices and trainees who were going to have their have their contract cancelled because it just wasn't enough work for them. Um, and uh, that was going to be a disaster. <laughs> uh, tens of thousands of um, people uh, you know, all of a sudden unable to finish their, their, their training. So that $1.5 billion, well, that's for, for small and medium businesses. Um, and they get a $500 a week, up to $500 a week, 50% subsidy, a wage subsidy. And the idea is to keep currently engaged, currently employed apprentices and trainees working. There's another $500 million uh, kind of component to it from the federal government. They hope it's going to be matched by the states, which goes towards this, um, say, the general vocational sector, and that's for everyone. And that's that idea that uh, they can, uh, or we can, they can offer... Um, uh, you know, courses in particular areas, generally aligned to areas of need, uh, skills needs, um, and that people who have lost their job or who are school leavers can undertake those courses. Yeah, and I heard um, over the weekend the ACTU put a question mark around that um, and it's calling for sort of free TAFE places and, and also voice concerns about kind of shoddiness in the vet sector, which I suppose plays, played out last decade. Uh, if we take one at a time, is there a chance to rebuild TAFE through this process? I do hope so. <laughs> I do hope so. I think that TAFE really has a really important, has a very important role uh, to play. I think it's interesting about, say, the, the, what's happened over the past you know, say decade in the vocational education and training sector is that when we talk about the dodgy providers and so on, they were people who really weren't part of the vocational sector um, uh, before their whole series of reforms were kind of implemented. There are numbers of private providers in the vocational education training sector that have very good reputation. They're usually kind of focused on a particular area like arts or, you know, um, or, and even within kind of enterprises like businesses, all businesses have their own kind of in-house registered training organisations. So those aspects have been good. Uh, it was only when it, often what happens in the vet sector is that when there's kind of like a bucket of money put out there, a lot of people enter the enter the sector who weren't there before, and it can end up in, in kind of disastrous results. That's basically what you've happened has happened over the past decade. So, hopefully, what happens as part of this extra money that's going into the sector is that it's kind of targeted towards the towards the providers that can provide really good, you know, valuable education and training for people. And so you're feeling that those sort of quality issues uh, can be addressed um, and we've learnt those lessons from, from the past? I think, I think we're still grappling with it. Um, I think there's, I think the vocational sector is very complicated. The way that it's structured um, makes it amenable to have all these kind of things put onto it, like market ideas, policies, and everything, which are, which are fine in their own way. Um, but when every time those reforms happen, something strange comes out of the vocational sector. I mean, we, 
In, over the past decade, that's included things like the Vets Be Help stuff, where there were quite large rorts going on, quite quite extraordinary things. Um, but even about a decade ago, I think people may not remember the uh, kind of problems with international students. There were a lot of problems with, say, um, international students and the courses that they were running uh, in the vocational sector that just weren't up to scratch. And, I mean, there was um, some reporting that the $2 billion that the Prime Minister has put forth um, has some strings attached in that it, 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 it's calling for consistency across the country. Is this a good move from where you sit, Peter? I think it's really unknown. And uh, I can't quite work, work out, actually, what the $500 million component actually funds. Because <laughs> it's called... They're saying there's 340,000 extra courses, which is a big number, but... Um, $1 billion is not going to fund 340,000 courses um, uh, in terms of funding in the vocational sector versus other parts of our education sector. Uh, about, um, for every full-time equivalent student, about, it's about $10,000 goes into the vocational sector and it's about $20,000 uh, per full-time student that goes into the university and, and school sector. Um, so these, these 340,000 courses... Um, uh, what's it for? What type of what, what type of courses? Um, uh, you're not going to be able to fund that amount uh, with um, three, with one billion dollars um, uh, unless you're calling it short courses, uh, which are kind of skill sets. Um, so I think the detail remains to be seen. Yeah, we're hearing terms like micro-credentials and all sorts at the moment. I suppose we're getting more tolerant, I feel like I am anyway, um, that we don't get all the answers all at once and we're working things out as we go. But when it comes to education, we know that disruption can have lifelong impacts on students and certainly this cohort that will be graduating this year or even those that um, were caught midway in an apprenticeship or whatever um, will be affected. How concerned are you about that? I actually think it's a major problem. It's a very, very big concern of mine is this uh, problem with um, uh, what's happening for people. I think the people who are most exposed as part of this kind of pandemic are those who are kind of in you know, kind of states of transition, moving from something from one thing to another. And that includes school leaders, includes international students as well, um, but, uh, uh, and apprentices, they're moving into, a, into the workforce, and those people are really exposed to, to, uh, to things, shocks that happen in the system. Now, what you're kind of looking at with the school leaver population is that about, there's about 250,000 school leavers every year, and they generally take a number of pathways from school into the workforce. Um, now, each one of those pathways is, is going to be affected in its own way. So, for instance, if you look at universities, about 60% of school leavers will find their way into to the workforce by the time they're 25 through the university pathway. Um, but they don't all start at once. A lot of them take a gap year. Um, uh, about 20% of 20 to 25% of that 60% take a gap year. But that gap year might be off because um, uh, for various reasons, you might not be all that go to see. There's not as many uh, jobs for people to, 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 uh, to take. Um, so there might be an increase in the number of people wanting to go to universities. But it's unclear at the moment in the way that we've got our system structured whether um, uh, whether the system can, whether the universities can meet any kind of change in demand. Um, if you look at, say, um, the apprenticeship 
uh, pathway, apprenticeship and traineeship pathway, uh, that's pretty clearly going to be disrupted. Um, uh, and also, there's a, you know, there's about 25% of people who will go straight into the of school leavers who go straight into the workforce. Um, and the type of jobs that they get are also uh, the areas, the industries that are being most affected by this. Um, so what you get is, and this is the big problem, is you don't want people becoming what's known as not in employment, education and training. It's called this NEET. Um, uh, N-E-E-T um, kind of acronym, and it's, it's a symbol of, it's a, uh, uh, of disengagement, um, indicator of disengagement, I should say, and it's really associated with terrible consequences, you know, long-term unemployment, poor health outcomes, um, uh, you know, a lifetime engagement with the workforce, uh, you know, characterised by low pay. Um, so you really want to be able to make sure that we've other parts of our system are functioning so that we can capture people and keep them engaged. And that's the role of the education system in a crisis like this. Yeah, and I, I suppose, you know, we the higher education system has all sorts of issues at the moment. We can't go into them. There's just too many. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I suppose there's a sense that um, the coronavirus uh, has kind of laid bare underlying issues um, that have been there for some time with funding and so forth with universities. But if we just sort of put that aside and just focus on expectation from young people or even people that are in between jobs now, um, that they may want to return to study, are we going to have the places there, Peter, do you think, to cater for the demand that is likely to be there for for the next calendar year? Um, It's... Again, unclear. <laughs> and this is—I think this is the this is the thing when it comes to say. Um, we, certainly within the university sector, there's a whole kind of, as you say, but look, there's been a number of proposals there, and and whether or not um, there's there's spaces available. There, there's a, certainly a lot of um, there's been an, uh, an increase in the number of uh, school leavers or people who will be school leavers who are wanting to apply to university. Um, I think that's a sign that pe- uh, people who are in year twelve or, or so on are looking for ways to, you know, kind of have shelter from the storm. Um, and I think what's you know what is important for us to do is to kind of create as many viable options as possible, uh, in the, whether that's at the tertiary, whether that's at university, whether that's at vocational education and training, whether that's apprenticeships and traineeships, and then let young people decide or let people decide what's the best option for them, uh, uh, because that's the best way I think of kind of uh, enabling people to stay engaged. And we've seen, you know, uh, all sorts of different ways that state and federal government uh, are sort of cooperating at the moment. I suppose, are you optimistic uh, that we can address all of these issues? We've covered so many um, just in the past 10 minutes or so. Are you optimistic that we're going to be able to do it while um, while kind of rebuilding the economy and dealing with the health crisis that I suppose is coming first? Well, I hope so. I, I mean, you know, there are some... I, I was thinking about this when I saw this kind of announcement of the 340... I mean, there's, there's a lot there, um, I, I suppose. And, and you actually don't need to have much more than what you've got at the moment in terms of the, educa- the role of the education system. Whether or not... It, it, the, the task kind of becomes kind of being able to target it at areas um, where there's going to be gaps. And that's really difficult to identify. Um, and that's kind of what happened to say, for instance, with this apprenticeship program is that rather than saying, okay, which, which employers are the ones who are going to be, <laughs> who are going to want to lose their, um, who might lose an apprentice, they're just giving it to everyone who's, who's a small and medium-sized business because it's really difficult to identify. Um, so I think it's, a, it's known as an issue. 
I think it really needs to be kicked in terms of, say, school leavers and young and youth pathways into the workforce. And I think we just keep pushing it as an issue. Um, uh, we can become, I think, you know, uh, and continue dealing with uh, and looking for policy solutions, then, then yes, I will be optimistic. It was Peter Hurley. He's our Education Policy Fellow over at the Mitchell Institute. I spoke with him earlier this morning about uh, the government's job trainer package and the ongoing impacts of COVID-19 on the tertiary and higher education sectors. And uh, you can have a look at the, some of the research we are talking about on the Mitchell Institute website. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.